So thank thank you everyone for participating. It's a very meaningful uh, ritual these days. So this morning I wanted to speak about what's called the hindrances or in the Pali language, Nivarana, that's, uh, you know, the things which hinder the mind to know what is good and wholesome for oneself and for others. And, you know, the cell phone itself is not a hindrance, but what it can, you know, what it can activate in our mind, that's what we, we call the hindrances. Because, you know, for someone... Uh, a cell phone who has never seen a cell phone before might not be in any way activated. But if there's a lot of, uh, you know, important communication pending for someone, a cell phone can be very aggravating. So the phone itself is just what it is. But what it, you know, what we make of it, that's uh, what uh, what it is for us then. And those, you know, forces in the mind, those qualities in the mind which get activated, they are classified as the hindrances in the Buddha's teaching. And I have brought along a poster which I'll hang up in the foyer afterwards, you know, which uh, gives us a very uh, succinct definition of each of those five hindrances and then also a definition of the mind which is free from hindrances. And in the suttas, there are some very beautiful, simple similes so that we can understand, you know, what the hindrances are and how they influence our mind. And in the suttas, they are compared with uh, bowls of water, which in the ancient times were used instead of a mirror, so one could see one's face reflected and adjust maybe some jewelry or a headdress or something one couldn't see very detailed, but you could definitely see enough. And uh, so those bowls of water, they are used as similes for the hindrances. And the first hindrance in the Pali language is called kamachanda, or sensual desire. And... Uh, it's compared with a bowl of water where the water is mixed in, where there is dye mixed into the water. So if I look into that bowl of water, 
if the water is red, then my face appears to be red, or when it's blue, it's blue, or whatever color is mixed in, that's what I see. So there's a, a hindrance there. I don't see really clearly. And then the second one is biopada, aversion or anger. And that's compared with a bowl of boiling water where there's a lot of bubbling going on and steam and so on. And if I look into that bowl of water again, my face isn't really reflected clearly, but there is a distortion going on. So that's uh, aversion or anger. And then the third hindrance is tinamida or sloth and topper in uh, English. And that's compared with a bowl of water which has been standing in a dark place and which is covered over with algae. If I look into that bowl, I can't see my face clearly. The fourth one is Udacha Kukucha, restlessness and worry. And that's compared with a bowl of water where the wind is going over the surface of the water and makes lots of ripples and waves. And if I look into that bowl, I can't really see my face clearly again. And then the last one is Vichikicha or skeptical doubt. And that's compared with a bowl of water which is muddy, where the mud hasn't settled yet and therefore I can't see my face clearly again. So that's those five hindrances which hinder the mind from knowing what is good for myself. And if I don't know what's good for myself, I also don't know what is good for others. So you know, a lot of the time our minds are actually under the influence of these hindrances and as long as we know it, it's not a problem because then we can use those very hindrances as a starting point for cultivating the mind because as soon as we are aware, for example, that there is anger in the mind, then there is mindfulness and then I'm not anymore identified with the anger, not anymore you're not drowning in that anger or becoming the anger, but just knowing anger is present. And I know it because I know it how my body feels when there is anger, and I also know, you know, how contracted my mind gets. And then if I if there's enough mindfulness, I can know that. For example, you know, somebody opens the door and shouts something um, at me. And then I feel oh, getting con getting contracted and and it's kind of unpleasant, it's painful. And then if I identify with that anger, if I lose myself in it, I would just try to get rid of that energy because it's painful and I split it off and shout it out and say, you idiot or something like that. And then afterwards I might feel remorse and then it's a, a long story, I have to go to apologize and so on. But if there is mindfulness, then I might feel the contraction and feel, you know, the urge of getting rid of that energy of anger. But I'm just going to remember this is impermanent. And then I'm just going to make some space for the energy, breathe into it. This is impermanent. And then, you know, maybe later when the anger has settled, I might go over to the person and maybe, you know, speak with the person about what, what happened. But I, I don't react, you know, just in order to get rid of the painful feeling. 
because I know it's impermanent. I can be with it. And that's really like a vignette, you know, of what the practice is about and the practicing with those hindrances. It's not about not having hindrances arising because we don't have much control over that, but it's how we relate to the hindrances, how we relate to our own bodies and minds when they are, for example, you know, activated in that way. That's the, you know, that's the, where we have a choice, where we do have power and where we can develop, you know, the mind to the extent that it is completely able to hold steady with whatever is arising. And we have to start with where we are right now. And uh, in the absence of, of the hindrances, when the mind is free from any hindrance, then it's compared with a crystal clear water like a mountain lake, you know, which reflects the mountains around the lake and we can also see to the bottom of the lake whatever down there, the fish, the stones and so on. So the clarity of the mind, the natural clarity of the mind when the hindrances are not activated, when the hindrances are in abeyance, so it would be for us, for example, temporary liberation of the mind from any of the hindrances, and then they are just, you know, they are just basically, the tendencies are still well and alive, but they are at the moment, it's an abeyance. And then, you know, when, when, a, when a certain uh, trigger happens, then phew, they come up again. But then, you know, with mindfulness, we can be aware of it and reflecting this is impermanent. And then the time comes and they settle down again. And that's, you know, the practice. And then through insight, over time, those latent tendencies, they get cleared out up to full awakening, arahantship, when there's no such uh, tendencies anymore latent in the mind and the mind is completely free, then whatever trigger happens, there will be no more anger or, or greed arising. The body still needs to eat, you know, and things need to be done, but the mind is no longer, you know, influenced by greed or aversion. So that's, you know, basically the long-term aim of the practice but now in the moment you know we can train our mindfulness and the rest of the seven factors of awakening uh, about those we speak about at another time you know just training the mind so it's more and more capable to not identify with the hindrances but know when the hindrances have arisen and then allowing them to be there and then gently, you know, coaxing the mind towards greater and greater capacity for making a lot of space. Because it's, you know, in the scriptures, it's compared with a, um, if I take a glass of water and I put a big uh, lump of salt into it in that cup, then if I drink the water, it will taste not very good, you know. But if I have a cup, you know, as large as the Lake Tahoe, for example, and I put a lump of salt into it, I won't taste it. And, you know, that's what we can do with our minds. We can cultivate the mind to become, you know, more and more vast, immeasurable, really, because that's the potential of the mind. The mind is immeasurable. And this practice helps us 
to recognize that potential we all have, just as the Buddha had. And when we bow to the Buddha, we bow also to our own potential for awakening. And, uh, you know, sometimes that practice is also, you know, summarized A, B, C, a bigger container. You know, the mind, making the mind bigger and bigger. And then, you know, whatever drops into the mind doesn't have such a big uh, effect anymore. It's noticed for what it is, but we don't need to kind of get rid of it or manipulate it because it's, there's a lot of space around experience. And if there's a lot of space around experience, we can see the conditionality, we can see how things are dependently arisen, and through this seeing, insight happens. And insight frees the mind. Experience understood translates into wisdom and compassion. And that's you know what the meditation is all about, not about manipulating the mind to be different than what it is, but really seeing clearly how this process is conditioned and there is no me or mine or I behind it. It's laws of nature operating. And if we understand them, we have a choice and we can uh, coax the whole process, you know, in a direction towards more and more freedom and more and more space and more and more choice. And, uh, you know, the absence of the hindrances are also described in the suttas in some very beautiful similes. The language is a very old language, but I think it, to me, it still speaks very, very clearly. Uh, freedom from uh, sensual desire, you know, not wanting anything, not being pained by needing something or, you know, constantly leaning into the future when I'm going to have this thing or whatever it is, that's compared with uh, when that is overcome or at least temporarily uh, appeased, that's compared to being free from that. And uh, being free from anger and aversion is compared with being, having, um, having, um, being free from disease and then being free from sloth and topper is compared with being released from prison sloth and topper the mind can become very very small and it's very difficult to you know open the mind it's compared with a prison like feeling like this and then being free from restlessness and worry is uh, compared with being released from slavery not being you know, send around here, there, to this, to that. Restlessness and worry can be like that, can't settle anywhere, is constantly on the move. And then the last one, skeptical doubt, is compared with coming home from a dangerous journey through the, for example, through the desert, you know, not knowing when there will be food and water and, you know, going in circles, not knowing where to go. So that's those five images being free from debt, being free from disease, being free from prison, from slavery, and from coming back from a dangerous journey. Those five. 
And, and the practice is all about, you know, knowing where I am right now in my mind, knowing where I want to go with my practice and seeing, you know, what fits in order to go in the right direction. And uh, so, you know, knowing when a hindrance is present or absent, for example, right now looking in the mind and seeing, you know, is there a hindrance present right now? And then knowing conditions which lead to the arising or to the removal of a hindrance. For example, you know, somebody who is um, addicted to alcohol, for example. And maybe, you know, shouldn't have even a sip of alcohol because they know what leads to the arising of a hindrance. And they know the mind isn't strong enough to stay steady. So then just not going close to those things for some time. That can be a solution until your mind gets stronger. And then the third one is knowing conditions that prevent future arising. Be a similar example, you know, not, uh, you know, not leading a life which is dragging us, you know, in the in a, in a direction where more of those hindrances arise. For example, you know, choosing wise friends is is a good example. So seeing the conditionality and that, you know, the hindrances are a product of causes and conditions and only some of those fall within the sphere of our own direct influence and to find out which are falling under our direct influence and then uh, choose, in, choose to make use of that knowledge. Even if it might be, you know, kind of uh, not bring comfort, at least for some time. For example, today, you know, when you were choosing to relinquish your phones, is a very good example, because it would be too difficult, you know, to be with the phone in the room and then constantly, ah, I just shouldn't go closer, don't open the cupboard because then I see my phone and then I get activated again. So I just give it up for six days. That's not a big deal. That's a very wise choice, you know. And then when you get the phone back, uh, you know, seeing how, how do you feel? Do you immediately have to make a, you know, turn it on and so on? Or can you maybe, you know, investigate how it is? What does the mind do when you look at your phone? And all of those things. That's why, you know, sitting in front of your favorite dish or cup of coffee and so on for three, four minutes before you're going to eat it or drink it and see, you know, what does it bring up in the mind. And then, you know, developing insight through that, through understanding how those um, laws of nature operate. So in that way, you know, the hindrances can become food for awakening. Because being aware of a hindrance is already uh, the first factor of awakening, which is awareness or mindfulness, sati. 
And our practice is simply to use this natural conditionality to support the mind in direction of progress to awakening. In daily life as well, you know, we can do that. And always again and again, you know, bringing up that thought, all things are impermanent. All things are impermanent. Because this, that can provide just the needed input to ensure that the taste of the Dhamma comes to pervade all of our experiences. If we can remember that, you know, the total confidence in impermanence that can protect us, you know, from uh, getting lost in the hindrances. Makes a big difference, you know, when whatever comes up, if we can remember, this too is impermanent. It's like an empowerment, you know, to to step back for a moment and then make a choice. Is it necessary now to say something, to do something, to eat something, or not? So I think that's always like a good a theme to start on because in the beginning and in the first days, in particular, you know, the hindrances need some time to settle down. So it's good that you know them and we're going to hang the poster up outside and then you can see what's happening in your mind. And, and just knowing it's not you. It's just conditionality, you know, taking its course. And you can uh, make a contribution by channeling all of this in the right direction. By bringing in the thought, you know, this too is impermanent. And not, you know, splitting up or splitting off the energy into reacting, but just like opening the mind and the heart into rather containing what is there and allowing it to transform. And, and bearing with the discomfort of that. Because it goes against the grain, you know, what we usually do. So it feels like somehow it's not nice, but it's a very good investment to make. Because in time, you know, the container will widen more and more and it has more and more capacity to be with the things how they really are. doesn't need to manipulate. And that's the freedom, you know, we can uh, cultivate through insight. And the four vipalasa are a list, you know, a real short list of the four most important insights which open the door to the deathless or to the unconditioned Nibbana full awakening. So we can sit for a few more minutes now before the end. Uh, so another 20 minutes.
So please find a posture you can sustain for about 20 minutes. And, you know, remembering it's not about making the mind to be any particular way, but being with the mind as it is right now. Hindrance or not hindrance, that's not the point, but knowing what's happening. There's this very, you know, powerful uh, quote also from the scriptures that's from the Machimanikaya 28. One who sees dependent arising or conditionality sees the Dharma. And one who sees the Dharma sees dependent arising or conditionality. process nature of all of this, which is empty of a self, which is just what it is, nature, taking its course. And we can learn, you know, to relate to that in a skillful way, rather than going under and completely getting mixed up and identifying with all of this. Losing fear of experience. Connecting with the body when you're breathing in and then relaxing, breathing out into the spaciousness, which doesn't end at the walls of this room. So supporting, you know, the body and mind to find its natural equilibrium. And using the Buddha's teaching as a, you know, as a guide to make the most of what we have got.
with this body and mind which we have for this life. And not wasting this opportunity. And for the remaining 15 minutes, I just leave you to it. Whenever you notice that your mind wanders off, just gently bringing it back to what's happening right now. No matter comfortable or uncomfortable, that's not the point. That's the radical guidance of this teaching is not making comfortable or uncomfortable the most important thing in our lives, but wholesome or unwholesome, which is very different than comfortable or uncomfortable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.